Um, we are in Isaiah chapter 9 tonight, so I would encourage you to please open your Bible. If you have an app-based Bible, that's fine too. Um, we are going to just kind of go through a little bit of history on our section here, and then we're going to be in verses 6 and 7 uh, over the next couple of weeks uh, as we go through the Advent season. So, um, you know, I'd encourage you as we go through this series, you can be reading through uh, different sections of Isaiah as we study these two particular verses and some characteristics and names that are given to our Messiah before he's born, long before he's born. So uh, what I would like to do, though, is just give you a little bit of a backdrop as to where we are in this section. And I'm um, Pastor Michael is sick, so I, I'm, I'm the bullpen that was called at about 2 o'clock this afternoon. So I'm going to cheat and just, I'm going to just read you from Chuck Swindoll's website because Chuck Swindoll is a smarter man than me. And he already wrote all the history of Isaiah down. So um, this is something you have access to. And can I just encourage you that as a student of the Bible, you live in a wonderful day and age where you can use this thing called Google and you can learn right from the comfort of your own home. And I'll just tell you, too, that that actually can be a blessing and a curse, right? Because it used to be if you wanted to know Bible verses, you had to memorize them. Um, now people are like, what's that verse? Hold on. Hey, Siri. Um, right? And so then they're, they're asking Siri for a Bible verse. And I would argue that's probably not the best means for your spiritual walk. So, um, you know, committing Scripture to memory and meditating on God's Word is uh, such, a, such a key thing. In fact, we're going to look at Psalm 1 tonight a little bit. So... Um, I'm going to just read a little bit for you from Chuck Swindoll. So first, who wrote the book? Well, um, you probably guessed Isaiah wrote the book, as is the case with nearly all the books of the prophets. The books of Isaiah take its name from the writer. So Isaiah is uh, married to a prophetess who bore him at least two sons. We see this in the book. And he prophesied under the reign of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, who we're going to see tonight as one of the main characters, and Hezekiah. And he likely met his death under a fifth and evil king, Manasseh. And many of you, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know Manasseh because Manasseh was a problem. Uh, Christian tradition, as early as the second century, identifies Isaiah as one of the prophets whose death is described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, specifically the prophet who was sawn in two. Um, Isaiah likely lived in Jerusalem given the book's uh, concern with the city and his close proximity to at least two significant kings during the period of his prophecy. So um, this is often the case, but not always the case, that Old Testament prophets um, live where they are actually ministering. And uh, this, I, I think you could almost um, parallel this with like a police officer living in the same city that they serve. It's not always a great idea. Um, prophets were not necessarily loved by the general public all the time. In fact, um, even in this little you know, synopsis of the history of this book that we just read, it's very likely that Isaiah is actually the prophet in Hebrews chapter 11 that's described as being cut in half, sawn in half. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty brutal way to die, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, I think just something that stuck out to me as I was prepping today for this is, man, comfort is one of our greatest enemies. And I think that we are just too comfortable in our Western Christianity. And I read about men like Isaiah, and Isaiah was not super comfortable. And I would just encourage you, and this is maybe, um, of course, I pray that it's the Holy Spirit led, not in my notes, but, you know, we live in a state that is going to make it more and more uncomfortable for you to be a, a professing evangelical Christian. 
And my question for you tonight, church, is are you seeking Christ or are you seeking comfort? And this is not um, a jab at people who are moving out of the state of California. And that's not my intention. But I do think we have to ask that question of ourselves. What are we really chasing after? Is it comforts or is it, is it Christ? And oftentimes I see men of Scripture who are called by God, called out of their comfort, not into their comfort. And that's what faith often looks like. Faith is the assurance of things not yet seen. That means God's saying, go, and I don't have the whole picture, and I go anyway, right? And so we are going to just continue to be faced with an onslaught of adversity, and we get to make a choice as to whether or not we'll stand or we'll cave or we'll just bail. Um, and there are certainly those who are certainly called by the Lord to relocate. And, um, you know, my wife uh, t- was texting me yesterday um, because she saw uh, an article of a, um, I, if I, and this is, you know, blame my wife if this is not accurate, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate um, because I've heard little bits of this too, that uh, California has now decided to release over 7,000 convicted pedophiles and they're going to be back in the general public and as a father of a daughter, that very much concerns me. And um, I'm not a violent person. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a fighter. I guess in many ways. But my baby girl is a different story. And um, those are those are those are moments in my life where I have to look in the mirror and say, okay, who do I serve today? Like, do I serve and do I yield to? Man, or do I serve and yield to God? And so um, I just, you know, that's not in my notes, but if that's for you tonight, if maybe you've been too comfortable and maybe God is calling you out of your comfort in certain ways, um, embrace it because that's the Christian life. Uh, We are called to die to self. So a little bit of where we are in the book. uh, Now that I punched you right in the gut, um, it's okay. I, I had to taste it first when I was prepping this and the Holy Spirit was convicting me. Isaiah prophesied from about 739 to 681 BC to the nation, to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Uh, Many of our modern day nations could probably qualify for that type of description. Amen. Instead of serving him with humility and offering love to their neighbors, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices in God's temple at Jerusalem and committed injustices throughout the nation. The people of Judah turned their backs on God and alienated themselves um, from from him, which created the need for Isaiah's pronouncements of judgment, declarations made in the hope that God's chosen people would return. And in fact, God tells Isaiah that he's going to continue to give warnings and people are going to continue to ignore him. That's nice, huh? God's like, hey, I need you to go and tell the people this. And by the way, they're not going to listen to you. You'd be like, can you find someone else, Lord? Because that just doesn't, nothing about that sounds appealing. Uh, but that was the call on his life, and he was obedient even to death, which is, of course, a picture of the Messiah to come in and of itself, that he would be first and foremost obedient to his heavenly Father. Why is Isaiah so important? Chuck Swindoll says, The book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. It includes the full scope um, of his life, the announcement of his coming. You see this in Isaiah 43 through 5. His virgin birth in 714. His proclamation of the good news in 61.1. Isaiah is a very long book. 
Yeah, that's chapter 61. His sacrificial death in 52.13 and 52, uh, sorry, 53.12, and his return to claim his own in 62 and 3. So there's all sorts of prophecy in this book. Uh, because of these and numerous other Christological texts in Isaiah, the book stands as, one, as a testament of hope in the Lord Jesus, the one who saves his people from themselves. And that's really the overarching theme of this book is that we are in big trouble without Christ. Amen? Uh, and I don't know about you, but the more I grow in my relationship with the Lord, the more I realize how desperately I need him and how bad of a mess I can make things in a very short amount of time. It's surprising how little time I need to make a mess of things without the Lord. And so, um, you know, I'm working on a new album right now, and um, I'm very excited about it. It's, it's not like, uh, I guess, uh, I, I feel like I should warn you, because I feel like there's probably some people expecting, like, the nice Sunday morning songs. They're not necessarily like that. Um, they're honestly a lot more songs about some of the struggles I've had as, uh, as I've grown up. And one of the songs is just a song about, like, trying to actually live a life of holiness. So the, the, there's definitely... Um, it's worship, as far as I'm concerned. It's worship from my heart to the Lord. Um, and I pray that the lyrics are relatable. But one of the songs that I was, uh, I'm working on right now is called I Need to Slow Down. If you know me at all, then you know that that title applies to my life. I'm very much busy all the time. Uh, but the opening verse of the song says, I woke up this morning with my eyes fixed on you, and I was starting to see clear. But within just an hour... All of my thoughts had continued without you. And, I, and I, I find myself in that mode. Have you ever been like that? You wake up in the morning and you, maybe you spend time in your, your uh, Bible, you spend time in prayer, and then like within an hour, maybe less, I, it's sometimes surprising how short of amount of time you'd really need, and all of a sudden like, it's like you're not even a Christian anymore. <laughs> like God's not there because you left him behind at the house. I don't know what happened, but, and of course this is not, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm joking, but the Holy Spirit's always with you. But there is this sense of we can so quickly forget and be distracted by the things of this world and the little trials that we face. Often they're not even big trials, right? They're little things. And all of a sudden we're operating in the flesh again and not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So um, this is just the, the long standing tale of man that we are very quick to abandon the things of God. And that's actually where the nation is at right now, as, as Isaiah prophesies, and they, they won't listen. So we see King Ahaz is here, and he has received multiple words from the Lord through the prophet to trust in the Lord, to ask the Lord for signs. And what does Ahaz do? In his self-righteous pursuits, he says, no, I won't. And so um, the short version of the history of where we're at right now is that we have a king who refuses to humble himself before the hand of God. And if you know your Old Testament stories at all, you know that anytime a king under a godly nation starts to drift away from God's leading, it usually yields very poor results for the entire nation. And I was just talking about California and our own governor who professes to be Catholic I don't, know, I don't know if he's ever read scripture or knows where the Catholic Church stands on a lot of these moral issues, but um, the way that he's leading our state is not in line with biblical convictions. And I don't have to shrink back when I say that. That's just the truth. I don't, I don't have any personal issues with him. In fact, I pray for him on a regular basis because he's making big decisions for the future of my family and my current affairs. And I would pray that we would be praying for our leaders, 
not scoffing at them. And, and you know, when their name comes up in a conversation, um, you know, just kind of dismissing them and scoffing at them, you know, but really we'd actually be representing Christ and be praying for the very ones that we might see in some sense as our enemies. Because ultimately we don't fight against flesh and blood, amen? But we fight against powers and principalities and things that are not seen. And so we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. But here we have in this section a king who is abandoning the faith. He's, he's not listening to the word of the Lord. And so it's making a lot of trouble for the nation. And so basically everything that King Ahaz is or in many ways is not, Jesus is the fulfillment. And that's the prophetic word that we're really seeing in chapter 9. And so now that you have a little bit of uh, background as far as what's going on in the nation of Judah, um, would you pray with me before we read our section here in chapter 9? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight to just take a moment and dedicate this time to you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to lead it. And we do pray for um, our state, for our leaders, and for those in power. Lord, they're there because you've allowed them to be there. I think of um, you, Lord Jesus, when you're arrested on the night that you're betrayed and you go before leaders who say, don't you know that I have the authority to this and that and the other? And Lord, your response is so powerful and so profound because you simply say any power that you have has been given to you first by my heavenly Father. And that remains true to this day. Um, any that are in positions of government or leadership in this state, in this country, in this world, Lord, they ultimately answer to you. They're there because you're sovereign and you've put them there for a purpose. And uh, we may not see it, Lord, and we may have issue, but uh, we are called to take things before your throne. And so um, that's what we're going to do. Lord, we, we ask for your leading tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So lots of application for us tonight, even, you know, if, if maybe you have a view of the Old Testament as being boring, I, you know, I hope that you would mature in your walk and see that's not the case. There's so much rich, uh, beautiful uh, content in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is absolutely filled with pictures of the coming Messiah, which is what we'll see right now in chapter 9 of Isaiah. So uh, we'll just read the first couple verses here for uh, 1 through 6. So Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read from the ESV tonight, and it reads like this, but there will be no gloom, and so now this is a prophetic word from Isaiah, for her who was in anguish. So now he's talking about the nation and the suffering that they've been going through. And this section of Judah and Israel has just been beaten up over and over again throughout history, just constantly in warfare, being overtaken by one evil nation and then another evil king, and so they've just been through the ringer. And so this is prophetic word of their future. and so he says, but there will be no gloom for her who is, was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun uh, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, and you may know this verse, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his uh, shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle... uh, Tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be buried. Excuse me, be burned as fuel to the fire. So this is to say he will put an end to war. That's a very fancy, wordy way of saying the Lord will end all war. 
And we know this is speaking of an ultimate uh, conquering that is to come. And verse 6 says, now these are our verses, our key verses for our Advent series this Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government, find hope and peace in this tonight, friend. The government shall be upon his shoulders, not man's shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And we'll read verse 7 because it's just too good. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the word, the word of the Lord is final. It's authoritative and it's been spoken. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. And these words are just as real now as they were thousands of years ago when they were first spoken to the nations. And so I pray that you would find comfort in these words tonight. Uh, maybe you're like me and you look around for, again, a surprisingly short amount of time and it's easy to get discouraged. Find hope and peace in this tonight, fellow Christian, that the Lord ultimately has come and he already holds the victory in his hands. And yes, we're going to face much adversity. Um, if, if you haven't been told that already, uh, well, newsflash, <laughs> you're going to face a lot of adversity in this life. In fact, it's promised by our Savior. So our key verse um, you know, just a, a flyover of these first few verses, we see the idea that this nation has constantly been run, uh, th- running into enemies. They've had all sorts of division and they've had bad kings. They've had kings that come in and try to serve the Lord, then they're cut off. And, you know, all these things happen and the nation's just been beat up over and over again. And so he says in verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so this word is now coming that the Messiah is coming. A child will be born. Unto us a son is given, right? And so he even says in verse 5, as I mentioned, that the Lord will ultimately, at the end of days, put an end to war. Uh, bloodshed and war will be no more. These are, these are things that are a part of your future hope as a believer in Jesus Christ. This day will come. And so our key verse for tonight, verse 6, For unto us a child is born and a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. You know, our series uh, through the Sundays and Wednesday nights for the next month or so is the gospel of the kingdom, right? And you and I are called to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And so in order to be a, a good ambassador for the king, you have to know the king and know his orders. And unfortunately... There are many Christians, dare I say, that are not very good ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ because they don't know the king's orders. You have to know the king's orders and the word that's been given by the high king to be able to carry out his will and his intentions. So if you don't read your Bible and you don't know why you believe what you believe, you're going to be, by all uh, things considered, a pretty poor ambassador. Um, and now if you have children, you've probably experienced this, right? So you have an assignment for one of your kids, or if you work with kids, um, you know, I, I've seen this a lot, uh, working with youth over the years and my aunt's a school teacher and helping with her in a classroom, you give a student instruction, but before you can give the kid instruction, they're already like, okay, okay, okay. And they're walking away and you're like, no, I haven't even finished what I'm saying yet though. You, you don't actually know what I need you to do. And I think that in many ways, that's a lot of evangelical Christians today. They, they, they love the idea of uh, Jesus as their savior and they want to make him their Lord kind of. 
right? And so they get a little bit of the orders and they're like, great. And a lot of Christians love this one. Love thy neighbor. They love that one. But then they don't wait for the rest of the order, which is what it actually looks like to love people. And what it actually looks like to love people is not to just pander to their every want and need and and affirm them in everything that they feel. That's not love. And so a good ambassador receives the full order of his king. And so tonight, if you want to be a good ambassador for the kingdom of Christ, you have to know the entirety of his order to be able to carry it out. You know, I heard a story a friend was telling me of um, a pastor, and he had a, a worship leader. It was a younger uh, lady, and she was helping lead worship. And she would often share during the times of corporate worship, and um, often with good intentions, but would sometimes share things that were questionable in their theological nature and uh, solid, you know, not super solid. And the pastor challenged this young worship leader and said, "Have you actually read the whole Bible?" And she was like, "Well, I've read some of it." And he was like. I'm going to encourage you, and this might sound harsh, but I think it's good. He said, I'm going to encourage you that before you share any more with the congregation, I want you to know your Bible more. And I want you to take time to actually read it in its entirety. And maybe some of you are like, I've never read the whole Bible. Why not? You should know it. I'm not saying you need to have it all memorized. I'm not the best at memorizing, so I often am, I can't even remember people's names half the time. I run into people at the store, and they're like, hey, Shane, and I'm like, Hey, man, how you doing, buddy? Do you guys hate, I, I hate when that happens. You guys, does that happen to anybody else or am I the only one that forgets everybody's name? I have to like do that association thing and I've learned about myself. I really have to like do that or I'm gonna forget their name and then I feel bad. Or I'm really guilty of this too. I've been playing drums for most of my life so my hearing's not the best. Uh, <laughs> and oftentimes I do this one, maybe this is you. You, you hear somebody say something and they're like, and you didn't, you didn't hear everything they said. But you're like, yeah, yeah. Right? This always gets you in trouble. Like 99% of the time. That 1% of the time you can get away with it. But I've done this more times than I can count. Somebody says something. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Like the awkward, like, ah. Uh. And they're like, okay, so we're good then? And, and you're like, uh, yeah, yeah. And the, you just start digging a deeper hole. Anybody else do that? I, I'm guilty of that too. I'm like, no. And, and then by the time you actually tell them, you didn't hear what they said initially. They're like, why didn't you just say that? Like, you just wasted five minutes of my life. Like, I could have just repeated myself right away. <laughs> so if you don't have the entirety of what's being spoken, you're not going to be clear on what you need to do next. And too many Christians are unfamiliar with the orders that they've been given. And you could think about it, the, the scripture, Paul, the apostle in particular, often in the New Testament uses the analogy of a soldier who has orders Right, And you, you need to know the orders and hear the orders to be able to actually live them out. Amen? So we know that the government rests upon his shoulders. He is the king of kings. He's the king of the, the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that will reign forever. And so as ambassadors, we're called to receive orders and then actually represent the king well. So a question for you tonight, for application's sake, how well are you representing King Jesus in your daily life? And I'm not talking about um, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night or from 8.30 to 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about when nobody else is watching and only the king can see. My wife and I have been talking about Santa Claus because 
now that Melody's getting a little bit older, probably not this year, but probably next year, the questions are going to start coming. We've been asking each other, like, how do we want to navigate this? And I, I told, the only thing I could really think to tell Natalie as we were talking about it is, here's what I don't want. I don't want my daughter to be good because she thinks Santa is watching. I don't want that. <laughs> I want my daughter to be good because she understands that to be good is to honor Jesus. And that should be our motivation for doing anything good uh, is to honor our Lord and Savior. And oftentimes in many applications, um, we're honoring other people and ourselves by being obedient to the Lord. But we need to have a, a, an allegiance and a reverence for our King. And many have accused the modern church, and rightfully so, for a lack of reverence. Um, frankly, the, the, the modern church... Um, people on average stroll in about 15 minutes late and about 90 minutes in, they're looking at their watch like, I got things to do, I got places to be, I gotta go, I gotta go. And then they'll go and sit at home and binge Netflix for four hours and not even wink an eye at it. And I'm like, well, where does your allegiances actually lie? Like, where do they actually lie if, if you're willing to dedicate hours and hours to a football game or a sporting event or you know, to your, your boss at work? But then when it's time to actually dedicate time to your ultimate king, your heavenly father, you can't really even squeeze in 90 minutes. And I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody, but it's a fair question that we ought to ask of ourselves, myself included. Where are my priorities at and where do my ultimate allegiances lie? And so we need to make sure that we understand that we serve a high king. So there's a lot of language here. Um, first, we see that a child will be born. So this is uh, speaking to the humanity of Jesus Christ. You know, um, you, uh, the, uh, Swindoll used this word earlier. and Maybe you heard it and you were like, what is that? So he used the word Christological. Okay, so this is a really big thing in our Christology, which is our, our theology specifically about who Jesus Christ is. Our, our Christology is a foundational principle to our proper theology, and so what that is, that is, is to say, you have to understand who Jesus is to understand who God is, because Jesus is God. And so this is why um, we can't um, be united with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, because their idea of, and even our, our friends who are Muslim, because their idea of who Jesus is, is fundamentally different than who the Bible actually says he is. And so that's a really big deal. So we have to get our Christology right. And um, what Scripture clearly teaches, though the word Trinity is not in your Bible, the idea of a triune God by nature is taught in Scripture over and over again. It's reiterated back in the beginning of the creation account where uh, the literal language is that God says, let us create man in our image. Well, who is he talking to? He's talking in the midst of these, this crazy thing that you and I can't understand. You know why people don't like the idea of a trinity? Because it doesn't actually make sense to our little pea brains as humans. We want to be able to understand everything. And that's the problem that a lot of people have with Christianity, ultimately, is that they want to be able to make it make sense. But we're talking about a God who is outside of space and time and the universe itself because he created it. I mean, the, the scripture says that he holds the universe in his hand. He's not bound by time or by the laws that, you know, these smart guys throughout history have uh, put their names on. The, the, our God is above and beyond those things. And so uh, first we see uh, the language is speaking of his human nature. A son will be given. 
And that idea of a son being given speaks of his divinity, that he's both human and divine, because a son is given from the heavenly father. So there's the language that refers to his divinity. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. This is verse 6. And his name will be called, and here's our section for tonight, Wonderful Counselor. So how will we know him? Well, we already have prophetic clues uh, of a virgin birth. And remember, this is a prophecy. This is, this is speaking of what will come uh, when it's being spoken to the people. Uh, so he will be male. We know that. And uh, the word son, Ben, is a, a significant reference speaking to the fact that of his divine origin, he will be given to us. Uh, and who is the us? Well, he's a gift from the Father of he- from heaven above to the nation at this time, but to all of mankind. He is the Savior of the world. And this is a really big deal in our theology as well, that we understand that Christ came to save all of mankind. And I, I firmly hold that position in Scripture, that the, the, I don't believe in limited atonement. That's just my personal conviction. Um, if you believe in limited atonement, that's fine. We can debate those things because they don't actually matter at the end of the day because you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. But I believe that when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, there's strong evidence in Scripture that his blood was for all. And through our free will, we choose not to follow or to follow. And God has given us the ability to choose. And so uh, there's, there's now language about the fact that God is uh, giving his son. He will be divine. He will also be human. And right there, we already are outside of our ability to comprehend how great our God is. And so when we view Jesus, we view him as both man and God. And, you know, there are all sorts of analogies that, that preachers and teachers have tried to use over the years to paint how Jesus is. You know, you may have heard this one. Um, he, you know, the Lord is like, uh, he's like, He's like H2O. He can be a liquid. Uh, he can be a solid, uh, as in ice, and then he can be a gas. Like, it's all, but it's all H2O. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a decent analogy, I suppose, but it still doesn't actually capture the, the powerful thing that's actually going on in the midst of the triune nature of God. Um, I've heard others like, you know, uh, he's like three different points on a, uh, an equal, what's, I haven't taken geometry in a long time, you guys. Uh, triangle, what is that, equilateral or... One of those fancy words. I studied theology in college. So, uh, but, you know, so he's like three points of an equal shaped triangle. And, you know, no, no matter how you shape it, like they're all equal. And I don't know. None of these analogies or these examples actually come close to capturing what's going on in the midst of God's nature because he's God, not a triangle. <laughs> thank God he's not a triangle. And thank God he's not H2O. He's so much more than that. And so we're not going to be able to understand this in its totality. We can't. And I'm thankful that my God is so grand and and to be revered that I can't comprehend him. Let me tell you, friend, if I could comprehend who God was, we would all be in really big trouble. Like, you don't want my brain to be able to comprehend how great God is. that, That would be concerning for all of us. Okay? That was a joke. You can laugh. All right? Somebody, one person in the room thought it was funny. So, um... This is a really big deal, though, that we understand who Jesus is. And and even from the early prophecies in our Old Testament, there is language speaking to his character and to who he is and his divinity and his humanity and all these wonderful things uh, that make Jesus Jesus. And so um, it's a really big deal that we get these things right. You know, I, I, I... This idea of wonderful counselor is something that I was contemplating on today. And bad counsel has gotten people in trouble throughout all of history. Uh, 
And Psalm 1 talks about this. Why don't you turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. The first Psalm. Psalms, basically, if you, if you took your Bible and you opened it up right in the middle, you'd be real close. And there's 150 of them, so you're, you're bound to land real close to it. So uh, Psalm 1, first Psalm. And this is such a beautiful Psalm. And we're talking about the idea of counsel. He's a wonderful counselor. And the word here for counselor is pretty much exactly how you and I would think of it in the, in the English language. Somebody who gives advice, somebody who gives counsel. So it's not, uh, there's not some hidden meaning. He is a wonderful counselor. He is, you could say, a perfect counselor. And so Psalm 1 says this. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight and this is what we've been talking about tonight, knowing your word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he what? Meditates. I'm not talking about yoga. I'm talking about, no, he thinks on and he sits in it and he, he, he contemplates day and night the law and the word of the Lord. That, that's, that's the scripture. If you want to know what it looks like to be wise, this is, this is very plain for you right here. Scripture says to be wise is to meditate on God's word day and night. You want to be full of wisdom? Know the word of God. Verse 2, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree. Now here's a picture of what it looks like in an in an analogy. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Here's the contrast. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a nice gentle psalm to open up the songs of, of the nation of Israel. Yeah? What if we sang that on Sunday? Can you imagine? That'd be, I don't even know how to put this to like a nice melody here. But basically, like you better shape up. That's the, the song would be called Shape Up, Christian. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is actually a song, right? We know our psalms are songs that were sung by the nation and penned by King David and others. And so the psalmist says, blessed is the man. You could say happy is the man. You want to be happy? It's not about how much money you have. It's actually about walking in the counsel of the righteous. It's about knowing the word of God. He says, the righteous man, he delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the immediate contrast to the way that the world and the non-believer views the scripture? See, most people, and I've said this already tonight, like the idea of Jesus as a savior. In fact, if you went and pulled people on the street, the general consensus from people would probably be, hey, you know what? Jesus was a pretty all right guy, right? The Doobie Brothers, you guys know that? Yeah, Jesus is just all right, yeah. Bad theology. Bad theology because Jesus is not just all right. Jesus is not just some good guy or some moral guy that lived a long time ago. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is God incarnate. And he demands your commitment and your obedience. And we don't like that one so much. I like Jesus as my savior. Not so much as my Lord though. I don't know if I want to be under his authority and have to do exactly what he says. That, that, that doesn't, you know, vibe so well with me. 
And so what happens is, is people embrace the idea of a savior, but they reject the idea of a Lord. And the two are not things that you can separate. A.W. Tozer in his book, A Spirit-Given Power, Spirit-Driven Power, it's something to that. Um, I read it a while ago. I can't remember the title exactly, but so much good content. And Tozer says, Scripture knows nothing of faith without obedience. He says they are two sides of the same coin, and if you were to try to separate them, you would ruin them both entirely. You cannot have faith without obedience. And so many Christians today are trying to live their life like that. And maybe that's you tonight. You like the idea of being filled with faith. You like the idea of Jesus as your Savior. And, but, but then when the rubber meets the road, when you are actually called to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, to die to self, to lay aside the desires of the flesh, and instead yield to the Spirit, well, that's a little more difficult. Right? And so it's easy to sing the songs on Sunday and look the part, but to live it out and to not put on the facade and to not just go through the motions and to be genuine before the Lord who sees all things and knows all things is a different thing. And so thank God for His grace and His mercy as we pursue Him. His standard for heaven is indeed perfection. And that is why the Messiah is so important. That is why we have hope in Jesus, because he fulfilled that standard of perfection for us on our behalf at the cross. You know, as we go through this Christmas and Advent season, that's really the message, you guys, that Christ came and took our place. You and I cannot do it. The book of Hebrews says that if the blood of, of uh, goats and bulls could have sufficed, then, then we didn't need Jesus to come. But those temporary sacrifices that we see throughout the Old Testament, and even in our modern day, our, our weak and pathetic attempts at somehow pleasing God through our merit and earning His grace, uh, the Scripture says our, our good deeds are like filthy rags before Him. You can't make it into heaven on your own merit. So thank God that He sent His only Son. And as we see in this wonderful passage, for unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government will rest on His shoulders, and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This is such a beautiful picture of what this season is really about. And yes, of course, most biblical evidence points to the fact that Jesus was not born on December 25th, the idea of this season is to dedicate a time to celebrate Christ's coming. That's what this is. It's, we're not worried about the, chrono, the chronology so much right now. This season of Advent is about taking time out of our busy lives to recognize and thank God for the fact that He sent His only Son to atone for our sins. And so, bad counsel is dangerous. Psalm 1 just reminded us of that, that the wicked man sits in the seat of scoffers and stands uh, with sinners. But the righteous meditates on the word of God. In fact, bad counsel is a dangerous thing and it's a common thing. Have you ever been somewhere and you overhear someone just giving someone terrible advice? Maybe I'm just like peeping on other people's conversations, but um, man, I sometimes just hear people giving the worst advice. And maybe you've experienced this. I worked over a summer when I was in high school at a, a detailing uh, uh, 
car place. And so we, we just washed cars all day. But it was a Pontiac dealer, so it was pretty cool because I got to drive a lot of like GTOs and uh, like Pontiac GTOs, which are pretty cool, and they don't make those anymore. And um, then Pontiac has some really hideous cars too that I let the other guys drive. But uh, <laughs> so we would, we would detail these cars though. And one of the first things they teach you when you're cleaning a car is from, and maybe you don't know this, and I'm, hey, you, you know what, tips with Pastor Shane right here, how to wash your car, okay? But when you're cleaning your car, you should really clean it one panel at a time, and you should never go in a circular motion because that's when you got, have a guy come to your house who's like a professional detailer and they spend hours and hours on your car. They're actually trying to get all those swirl marks out of your paint from years of you washing it incorrectly because actually like if you have a door, you should go just in straight lines across your panel to keep your paint and your clear coat in good shape. I remember years ago, we were at a youth car wash and I was running the, the power washer and I was trying to tell the kids like, hey, you know, uh, it's best for the clear coat finish on the car, just go kind of you know, side to side on the panel and make sure your towel's clean, you know, just giving them little tips. And there was a dad there and he was really excited to help, but he's just giving really bad advice, right? So he's like, come on guys, dig in, you know? <laughs> and he's taking like these rags are falling on the floor and he's got debris on there and he's throwing it against the side of the car and he's like, you gotta give it some elbow grease, you know? Come on guys. And he's like so excited and the whole time I'm sitting there like, you're just scratching the paint, dude. Like, I don't know what you're doing. You don't even have soap on your towel right? And, you know, sometimes you sit by and you watch people just giving really bad advice and you're like, no, no, don't listen to him. You see this at the gym a lot. I see this at the gym. Like some guy comes over and starts telling somebody how to lift weights. Usually it's a man who's trying to make a pass at a woman. And so it's even worse, but they're giving them advice and it's just horrible advice. You're like, no, that's not how you do that. You're both going to get hurt now. Right? And so it's always hard to sit by and watch somebody give really bad advice. Well, bad advice has actually been a problem from the very beginning. If you go all the way to the beginning of your Bible, turn with me to Genesis uh, for a minute, bad advice has always been a problem. Uh, here in Genesis chapter 3, go to verse 1, the beginning of Genesis, the very beginning of your Bible, chapter 3, verse 1. I hate snakes, and it's biblical, because they've been cursed from the beginning. And he says, uh, the... the, the the, the writer in Genesis here says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now Satan, in the form of, of course, a snake, Indiana Jones, snakes, why did it have to be snakes? He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So bad counsel usually starts with questioning God's authority. If you're taking notes, that's probably worth writing down. Bad counsel usually starts by questioning God's authority. Well, does the Bible really say that? I don't know. Do you really have to do that? So the serpent says, did God actually say? Maybe with a creepy snake lisp. Not to eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, we may eat of any of the fruits. So she gets it right at first. She's doing good. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the uh, midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, here comes temptation and lie number two. Bad counsel, round two. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, pride. Here's our uh, second principle. Bad counsel usually revolves around pride. Okay? So he says to her, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now think about where we're at in history right now. Think about this. You can't even comprehend this. I can't comprehend this. Adam and Eve have not known any evil at this point. Just think about that for a minute. That is the way that God intended things to be for you and me. That we would not know of evil. That's just a profound thing. But Satan, in a desire to deceive them in pride, he questions God and what does he say? He says, no, no, no. God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And you know the story. And she also gave some to her husband. And we don't know where Adam's been. This guy, he's watching a football game, not even paying attention to what's going on. And what? It says that he ate of it too. And then this is one of the most sad verses in all of scripture. Verse seven of Genesis three says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. This is the first time that man tastes evil in our biblical historical account and the first time ever. And nothing, this cannot be undone. This is, this is where This is where it begins right here. And this is where Christ is now at this moment in history. This is where Christ becomes absolutely necessary. Because now separation between God and man has been created. And all of it started with bad, bad counsel. So lesson number one, if a snake tries to give you advice, don't listen. Snakes are terrible. We were golfing a couple weeks ago and, uh, well, it was a couple weeks ago. It was a while ago. And there was like a, it was in the summer and there was a snake. And I don't know why. I hate snakes. But somebody, whoever I was with, was like, oh, look, a snake. And so what did I do? I'm like, oh, cool. And I walk over there. And then I got within like three feet of it. It was like, I hate this. This is disgusting. The way they move, they look slimy, but they're not. What is going on? I don't know. Snakes are bad. Okay? That's in your notes. Snakes, bad. Snakes equals bad. Okay? But uh, on a serious note, really, bad counsel is at the root of the fall of man. That Satan shows up on the scene and he gives very bad advice. He said, and he lies and he says, no, 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 in, in, in his pride. And oftentimes the people in your life who are going to give you the worst advice are full of pride and they're giving you advice from a prideful stance. And so I would challenge you uh, for the sake of application. When you go to people for advice, choose people who are godly men and women. Too many Christians are going to all the wrong places for advice and for counsel. In contrast, we see in our scripture tonight that God is a wonderful counselor. But the reality is that too many people, far too many people, are going to the wrong places for their counsel. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have doubts, first and foremost, you take them to the Lord. And then... God has blessed us with the idea of community and with fellowship and with other believers. And then we take it to people who we can actually trust, who are going to see things through a godly perspective, through a a Christian worldview. And, you know, even this issue of abortion and stuff, I see so many Christians right now that have received bad, unbiblical counsel and have formed their opinions and convictions on unbiblical counsel and now are living 
out a worldview that does not actually line up with their word. And because they do not know their word, they don't even realize that they're wrong. And so this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. We have to know our word. I can scream it till I'm blue in the face and there are still so many people that will sit here and they will refuse to get into their word. I can't make you do it. But I'm telling you that if you want to live a life that honors the Lord, if you want to be wise, if you want to have good counsel, if you want to live an actual biblical worldview and live out your biblical convictions, you have to know the orders from the king. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, I think that the Lord right now is allowing, uh, in many ways, a lot of people to reap the the direct consequences of their, their decisions. And I think that the Lord allows us to be disciplined because he actually loves us and he cares. You know, we see God as a God who exists to meet our needs. And so many Christians almost live their life as if God is just a genie in a bottle But the scripture says that the lump of clay doesn't question the work of the potter. And so we need to yield to the will of the Father. We need to yield to his direction. You know, I I have a friend in the room and uh, we have a mutual acquaintance that has walked away from the faith and um, they ran into each other at the gym and, uh, you know, my friend has a pretty crazy testimony and Um, he just began sharing about how he's been transformed and was giving all the glory to the Lord. And this guy that we've known who's since left the church and left the faith said, you're not giving yourself enough credit, man. You did that stuff. And you can see through the eyes of Christ and through a biblical worldview, you can see the pride that's welling up inside him. He wants the credit. But you know, if, if you know Christ, you know that any good that comes out of your life is because Christ has done it through you. You can't do anything good on your own, friend. You can't. Sure, you can do things that are objectively good, I suppose, like helping an old lady across the street or making a homeless guy a sandwich. But any real lasting good ultimately is because Christ does it in you. And so we need to understand that about ourselves. And the more that we understand that, man, the more we will be humbled in the presence of the Lord. Um, Nathan, could you bring me that, that commentary that I left back there? I want to share a Jonathan Edwards quote out of there, and I forgot to write it down. You know, we've looked at this idea of a wonderful counselor tonight, and we've, I pray that the Lord has spoken to you. I pray that we would be humbled as we think about the fact that, thank you, that the Lord is our wonderful counselor. I wanted to close our time tonight with, with this, this quote that I read as I was studying today because it, it really did punch me in the gut. So now I'm going to pass it on to you guys. You're welcome. Oh, Give me a moment. I have to find it. There's a lot in here. Oh, here it is. So talking about this idea and talking about um, the fact that if we want to live a life of actual good and we want to serve the Lord and be obedient and have a life that is lived for the kingdom of Christ, do you want that tonight? I want that tonight. Because when I die and when you die, you guys, you're going to answer to one, one person. And it's not going to be the opinions swirling around on your social media. It's not going to be anybody. It's going to be the Lord. 
And kind of along those lines, this is Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, a great scholar, um, biblical scholar and, and theologian over the years. And um, he says, the difference shows, the difference shows, uh, and he says, Jonathan Edwards describes a true Christian like this. And this is our last thing for tonight. I would just, I would just encourage you to just think on this. As he has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. As he is more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it all the more. He is less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings. God frowns and the calamities of others He has the firmest comfort, but the softest heart. Richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. He is the tallest and the strongest saint, but the least and the tenderest child among them. And the part that really stuck out to me was that second line. He says, as he is more sure than others of his deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it. As you grow in your walk with the Lord, you begin to realize more and more as you mature in your faith how much you actually deserve damnation. Nice light note to end on tonight, but that's just the reality. That the more I I grow in my pursuit of Jesus and the more that I grow in my relationship with my Heavenly Father, the more I realize that I deserve hell. And, 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 and then in, in turn, the more I, I cherish and value the atonement of Christ and the coming of that child on that night in Bethlehem, that, that changed everything because my Savior entered into the mess that I had made. I mean, when you think about the birth of Christ, do you think about it with that level of weight and that gravity? That, that you, were, you were damned to hell. But because Christ stepped in, you have a hope, a future, and a hope. And so I pray that in this Advent season, as we, as we celebrate the, the coming of Christ and we sing songs like, you know, joy to the world, the Lord has come. I pray that maybe tonight you would have a fresh perspective on what the coming of Christ really truly means for you and for all men who would, who would surrender and repent that you have hope tonight because Jesus came. And if, had he not come, had he not entered into our pain and our suffering and, and lived the life that you and I couldn't live, we have no hope. And I don't know why we're here. If, if Jesus didn't come, we are wasting our time. And so I pray that we would, as we celebrate this season, this season is marketed and propagated with selfish pursuits and what can I get and what, how can I spend my money and can you just be a person who celebrates the fact that you have new life in Christ and, and let it be what it's actually supposed to be about and be generous and be less concerned about self. That's just good principles for the Christian life. But I pray that it would even be magnified in this season, Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we've been able to study it together tonight. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that, that, thank you, that you came.
that you are Emmanuel, God with us, that, that you came and, and you, you took on flesh and, and you bore that cross and, and you lived a life that, that, that we couldn't live. And, and because you lived out the standard of the Heavenly Father that is perfection and, and, and you, you fulfilled that, we have hope. And, and so I pray that tonight we would, we would just be reminded of the, the miracle that it is. And Lord, as uh, Jonathan Edwards put it so eloquently in that, that quote, that the more that we understand that we've been saved from hell and we've been rescued, there's a sense of knowing that, man, that's what I deserve. I'm not good. But because of what Christ has done, I can be saved, I can be redeemed, I can be literally made new, reborn. And so lead us tonight, Lord. May we cherish you uh, more than we ever have before. And may we understand the gravity of your coming and, and your rescuing and your redeeming. And so we, we look to you for everything that we need, Lord. And uh, we pray for your blessing over this weekend with the kids' shows and that um, the gospel message as it goes out would, would pierce hearts and that lives would be changed and recommitted and maybe committed for the first time. If there are those who are prodigals who have, who have walked away, Lord, as the story of the prodigal son goes, um, as you tell it out of your own mouth in Scripture that when, when that prodigal returns home, his father doesn't cast him out or shame him, but he, he runs to him with open arms and says, my son has returned. And so if we have walked away, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we would say, I'm, I'm going back home because I've tried to do it without my father and I failed. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in you tonight and we, we, we just rejoice in that hope. In the midst of all the chaos, Lord, may we be a people full of joy that, that really surpasses understanding. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.